John Bailey, and on this week's episode of Popcorn Junkie, I'll be reviewing only two movies in theaters. The latest from Henson Alternative, I think, honestly, their first feature-length film, The Happy Time Murders, as well as the Boy and His Robo-Dog movie, Axel. Plus, a Netflix and chat again, after a long while, about the new Matt Groening series on Netflix, Disenchantment. So, let's get started. God, are you all right? I ruptured my hymen. This pure ecstasy. I'm not doing this. Do it. <laughs> oh, sorry about your dead human friend, Phillips. He's <laughs> 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 good. <laughs> Is Phil in? He's servicing a client. Is that what I think it is? Well, what do you think it is? Still blows my mind I have to do editing on a green band trailer to make it uh, make it clean enough for the podcast. Hey, they. So yeah. The Happy Time Murders. The long in production just went through development hell. Puppet-based movie, initially uh, turned down by Brian Henson, uh, Jim Henson's son, who also directed Muppet Treasure Island and uh, Muppet uh, and a Muppet Christmas Carol. But eventually, he was he was brought on in the final production end of things, and we with the likes of uh, Melissa McCarthy, Elizabeth Banks, Maya Rudolph, Joel McHale, really solid human cast on top of the puppeteers. As and then of course you've got some. Uh, Henson mainstays. Kevin Clash is here as one of the uh, main puppeteers. You've also got... Um, let me pull up... the IMD- Let me pull up the IMDb real quick. Uh, uh, aside from Melissa McCarthy, the uh, main puppet... Uh, main puppet actor is... Where is it? Oh come on! They they list all the human actors first. I guess it, I guess that technically counts because it's in credits order. Uh, Bill Beretta, who is best known for uh, Pepe the King Prawn and the Swedish Chef and Rolf, uh, he also did Clueless Morgan in Muppet Treasure Island, the uh, goat character. So he's been a Henson actor for a long time. Uh, you've got Dorian Davies here as well. She is the main female puppet character. She's been doing stuff for, like, uh, Julie's Green Room, for those of you who know that. Uh, Word Party has been her big thing lately. Splash in the Bubbles. So she's been doing, um, kid, you know, a lot of kids' voice acting and whatnot. Uh, something called This Is Not a Film. I'm not sure what that is. Uh, love, and, love, Sex, and Misconnections. So she's been, she's a, she's a little, little all over the place. Um... She's an actress and puppeteer, so that's how she, you know that's how she got in. But she's so she's kind of new with Henson. Uh, Victor Yared, who you may know as um, uh, the Adolf Pigeon in the Producers, and several characters on Greg the Bunny. Uh, he was also a puppeteer in Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Also does Word Party. Wait, is Word Party a Henson series? Doesn't look uh, there sits the science kid. I don't think that I, I know that's uh, CGI. So yeah, look that looks like a CGI series. Doesn't say if it's related to Henson or not. Doesn't no, okay. It is Jim Henson. So there are both Henson voice actors, 
but um, also splashing bubbles. So I guess that is, that is a. But Victor Yared also does Kermit the Frog and Miss Piggy for Robot Chicken. Did No You Shut Up was is the dad on Sid the Science Kid, uh, the Puppet Game Show, which is which is something I was not familiar with. Not sure what that is. Game show hosted by humans and puppets. Huh. Coolio. So yeah, this guy's been a long-standing puppeteer. Um, Drew Mass, and then Drew Massey's kind of the other main puppeteer. Uh, he is best known for all as the actual Sid the Science Kid. Did one of the worm guys in Men in Black. Puppet, he's the one who puppeteered Puppet Angel. Uh, in uh, that one episode of Angel. Uh, Mutton Stuff. No, You Shut Up Again. Which is... Uh, okay, yeah, that was the Comedy Central. I think that was Comedy Central. Yeah, Comedy... I, mm, let me double check. But yeah, that was a... Oh, was that Comedy Central or was that the internet? Where... That was another Henson Alternative series. Okay, I think that was for YouTube. Uh, Hot Dog, that was Victor Yared. Paul Tompkins was the host. And then he had a panel of either guest uh, guest uh, improv actors or puppets. And it was the main, mainly a bunch of puppets. And it, it, it was literally titled, No, You Shut Up. And it, it ends up all a parody of... Um, of, uh, you know, those... Those round table sort of talking head shows on cable. And it was fun. Uh, was that Comedy Central or was that YouTube? Fusion. That's why. It was on, I watched it on YouTube because it was on freaking Fusion Network. Uh, so yeah, this guy, so these, so these are all me, puppet, uh, Henson me, regulars. Uh, a bunch of them have also worked with Henson Alternative. So they're, they're so the, we're dealing with, you know, you know, the mainstays here, but uh, suffice to say that this movie's got plenty of problems. Uh, the main problem is that it's Roger Rabbit liked, which is to, I mean, it, it is basically the premise of Roger Rabbit and replace the tunes with puppets and replace it from 1940s, uh, Los Angeles to present day Los Angeles. It's essentially the same movie. It's somebody's taken out at, you know, it's a noir parody Although, for Happy Time Murders, there's a lot more emphasis on jokes than there is on storytelling. Uh, Roger Rabbit had plenty of jokes, but the jokes, a lot of them tied into the character development and the storytelling. Roger Rabbit was just a damn well-written script. This one, uh, the guy, the main one writing this uh, screenplay was Todd Berger, who did uh, It's a Disaster, the... uh, that um, indie comedy where uh, it's David Cross and who's the other one I remember? America Ferreira is in it. Uh, Julia Stiles is in it. Uh, he is, and it's basically about uh, br- uh, people uh, in brunch when a chemical attack goes down. And so he oh he was an actor in that. So where's where are his writing credits? Here, twenty two credits as a writer. Uh, cover versions. Not sure what that is. TV short for the Smurfs. He did write It's a Disaster, though, so okay. Uh, he did a Smurfs Christmas Carol. Kung Fu Panda Secrets of the Furious Five. Don't Eat the Baby. Adventures at post, Post-Katrina Mardi Gras? Weird. Number one fan, a, a dark-o-mentary. A dark-o-mentary. Uh, so he's not exactly, um... 
Uh, yeah, so his biggest movie before this was It's a Disaster, which was okay at best. I mean, it wasn't like the best thing ever. Sen- Senisters. The Scenesters. Okay. Serial killer starts picking up beautiful young hipsters on the east side of Los Angeles. Oof. Oh, boy. Yeah, it doesn't sound like something I'd ever want to watch. I mean, it'd be one thing. It's, it's fine to see hipsters be killed. I mean, that's, I think that's everybody's dream. <laughs> Depend, you know, especially if they're like, I mean, if they're just obnoxious people. Uh, yeah. Any, but at any rate, uh, yeah, Todd Berger is not the best screenwriter, it seems like. I didn't hate it, the disaster. I also don't really remember it, but I don't remember it. I don't remember all that well. Yeah, you know, it didn't exactly sit with me. You know, it didn't stick with me as a movie. He also did cover versions this year, this past year. So apparently, he did, he did an indie movie. He directed an indie movie this year, uh, featuring Drake Bell and uh, nobody else I've heard of. Drake Bell's the only person I know in this entire cast. Four band members tell varying accounts of a night of sex, drugs, and murder before their first big show at a popular music festival. Huh. Okay. I mean, it's an interesting... Like, this, like, a, like, like, uh, Berger comes up with good premises. I don't... I feel like he's not the best at executing those premises, though. At least from what I've seen. Uh, so, yeah, we've got... You've got Roger Rabbit light as the as the premise here but then the execution is ultimately what matters and so i feel like there's plenty of rewrites as the screenplay was going on i mean this spent 10 years in development hell before this final production kicked off in 2015 so they had a long time to kind of come up with what they wanted to do and this i mean that's the other thing too is that this is the first r-rated puppet movie to be released as a feature film since 1989's Meet the Feebles, which barely counts because nobody can find a copy of it anywhere. Like, it is, you'd have to search the dark web and torrent sites and just find some pirated VHS rip of it because it, it, you, they do not want you to see this movie. Not because it's that raunchy even. It's just, I mean, Meet the Feebles is, like, almost infamous and it's sort of, like, debauchery. But it's not exactly the best movie out there. I can kind of understand why uh, Peter Jackson isn't exactly keen on making that first and foremost in, like, his Criterion collection. So, like, oh, from the director of the Academy Award-winning Lord of the Rings franchise, here's, here's puppets boning. Yeah. It, I don't see that happening. But at the same time, like, apparently it's available out there because, uh, spill, uh, not spill, uh, Double Toast did. Uh, but Sammy, uh... The um, excellence over at Double Toasted did his uh, his his episode this week of his show. Sammy ain't seen uh, shrimp. To quote uh, one of my local t- radio shows, uh, yeah, Sammy ain't seen s and uh, and he talked about Meet the People, so he was able to get to a copy. But it's not exactly. There's not like a special edition. Special, like, uh, I don't expect, like, a special 30th anniversary edition of Meet the Feebles to come out next year, if you know what I'm saying. Uh, uh, There's also a main major comparison to be made here with last year's Bright. Because, once again, you've got modern-day Los Angeles, a sort of cop-drama noir sort of thing, with a very heavy-handed racism theme going on. In Bright, it was about, um, it was comparing orcs to, um, 
lower class uh, black Americans and and uh, Hispanic pe- uh, people. And here, its puppets are just the de facto second class citizen. Not specifically black or Hispanic or any sort of race in particular, but the very heavy-handed sort of, hey, here's, the, here's our story about prejudice. I feel like, once again, Roger Rabbit handled this way better. You could tell, even there's another movie that handled this pretty a little better. Uh, it wasn't as on the nose, but the subtleties were there. And that's Cats Don't Dance. Cats Don't Dance dealt with anthropomorphic animals in place of actors of color in Hollywood and how people of color were relegated to minor roles and roles that basically fit their archetype. So animals could only play animals. You wouldn't see animals starring in other roles. And that's kind of how Hollywood relegated actors of color for the longest time. You couldn't see a black man or a, a, a Hispanic woman or an, a, you know, an, Asian, you know, an Asian couple leading a Hollywood film. Americans just would not see that as uh, Crazy Rich Asians becomes the second, stays at number one for the second week in a row at, <laughs> from a Hollywood major production that is centered entirely on, Asian, on an Asian cast. That's funny to think about in retrospect. Oh, wow. You, wow. You guys were just, oh, wow. Wow. You were just awful. But yeah, at any rate, Happy Time Murders isn't even about that so much. That's just the backdrop. The main impetus here is the whole drama, is the horror noir element. And it plays up the noir parodies to the, the, you know, to the T. Like, even, even at the end of that trailer you heard, that was a reference to the whole, like, femme fatale coming into, I think it's even like a basic instinct reference in this movie. So this is this is leaning heavily on the parody side of things. And I feel like that's its weakest element, is that it is a parody film, and not necessarily the best kind of parody. Someone described this as basically a robot chicken sketch drawn out to 90 minutes instead of, like, five. And I absolutely see that, because there's a lot of elements that work as part of, like, a robot chicken sketch. Like, oh, here's... You know, whatever the story from Roger Rabbit is, but this time it's with the Muppets. Like, I could absolutely see this as a robot chicken sketch. But there's a, re- there's a reason, like, Roger Rabbit had so many other things going on. References to the highway system coming into to Los Angeles. The, you know, the, the corruption going on. The, oh, you know, the secret backstory that was beginning to unravel. Roger Rabbit had so much more going on. And Happy Time Murders doesn't really have all that. It's mainly just, hey, here's puppets saying curse words, and there's puppet jizz, and here's fluff flying everywhere. So, I mean, it's not, but that's not to say it's bad, because everybody here does a great job. Uh, The puppetry is top-notch, some of the best I've seen uh, in a a major motion picture. The human actors work great against the puppets. The puppeteers do an amazing job. But it's just not ready for prime times. Like, this would have been better suited for Netflix a la Bright. If this was made for Netflix, it would probably be one of the best things on Netflix at the time. You know, or put it on, like, Hulu or Amazon, Amazon Prime. Make it for a streaming service, and this would work perfect. I can't imagine people spending, like, ten bucks to sit down in the theater to see this when... There's ultimately better puppet stuff on, like, the internet or, uh, you know, or from old TV shows like Greg the Bunny or, um, 
uh, what's Wonder Shows and you know things that have done this before and had more going on for them. So this was a good movie. It just it just wasn't great. I liked it overall, only because I liked the puppeteering and I liked the idea of hey, here's here's just more puppets. The Henson Company seeing what the, expanding what they can are capable of with puppets is always a good thing. It's just that. This the writing was not there to back this movie up. If there was much better writing for this movie, then we could have had the equivalent of Roger Rabbit going on, you know, or even something as good as Cats Don't Dance, which isn't a great movie, but it's a very good movie. So, Happy Time Murders disappoints only in that the writing wasn't there to back up everything about it, and people were starting to see that uh, going into this. You know, the trailer was emphasizing the jokey aspect of everything rather than trying to tell an actual story. Because sadly, there isn't much of a story here to tell. And what they do of it is kind of convoluted and doesn't really... It feels like, it feels like this went through several drafts before being set on a final script. Because there's a bunch of stuff that comes up by the end that, didn't, that wasn't really there at all in the beginning. So, yeah, it, it's not a great movie. I think it's probably something you can wait for Netflix to see it, you know, to see it on like a Saturday night after coming home from the bar and putting on Netflix before you go to bed. I think that would be fine or maybe just like ha- you know, just hanging out whatever the case may be, wait for this on Netflix. I can't expect you to go to the movies to see this. It sucks because they put a lot of work into it, but this was not a this is this one's not going to work as well for movie theaters. This is going to be, this is going to be relegated to sort of like a cult classic on streaming services more than anything else. At least I would think so. If nothing else, this would make a better TV show premise. Like, just a cop drama and cop, par- cop show parody with puppets. Like, most puppet-based shows are kind of parodies of existing shows. It's just... Why not make this a TV... That's why I'm still baffled that Avenue Q has never been adapted, but I'll get into that more in the discussion. So yeah, Happy Time Murders, it disappointed me because I wanted something more from it. But for what we got, it was fine. So yeah, just wait for it to come out on Netflix. What you should do is turn it in. It's not Finders Keepers. You gotta stay down, all right? It's a robot. An intelligent robot. He feels things. Sending you the new location. Move in for retrieval. We're in this together. I honestly don't have very much to say about this one. I mean, it's. We just had a boy and his dog movie, and it was ultimately better and more interesting to watch than this. This is. I said it in my Stardust review. This is Monster Trucks, but not as fun. Like, Monster Trucks is inept and baffling that it even exists. Axel, the best thing it's got going for it is the dog prop. The actual Axel puppet, like, uh, like puppet rig and the CGI they've got mixed in. That is the best thing this movie has going for it. Everything else around it is just dull as the dirt that they ride their bikes on which also yeah this is this this movie features a guy who's into dirt bikes 
Hey, kids, remember when dirt bikes were cool? Extreme! At this point, like, I remember dirt bikes having, like, this big push in, like, the mid-2000s, around the same time as the X Games. And dirt bikers are fine. Like, they're, I mean, they're, I don't, dis, I don't think they're not athletes or anything. That they're, they're, you know, they're just, you know, they're good at what they do. I just don't care. There's nothing about dirt biking that makes me want to care. <laughs> and this movie didn't do anything else to make me want to care. It's every generic cliche about, you know, a kid finding a thing. Oh, the rich bully jerk off he's always putting him down and picking on him and always treating him like dirt <laughs> look at me i'm the rich asshole i thought they were going to subvert it early on but then they completely walked right into it and i'm just like uh fine whatever uh so and then the, the main character is just like a hunk of balsa wood he does not bring who is this kid I have no idea who this kid. I don't. The only people I know in this movie are Ted freaking McGinley, who, what, who was, who if I'm, who has been mainly relegated to freaking, like Christ exploitation. Oh no, he's yeah, he was the second Jefferson Darcy on Married with Children, uh, and then he was in God, and then he's been in God's Not Dead. He was in God's Not Dead three, and then. Apparently, although he has been, he's 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 been doing uh what the most he did the last Transformers animated series, uh, Robots in Disguise, uh, TV movies. So I mean, he's not doing too bad. Like he's get, I mean, dude's getting work. He do, dude's getting plenty of work. Uh, apparently, he was Aquaman two in an episode of Batman: Brave and the Bold. So I mean, yeah, the guy's getting work, and okay, he I, I guess it's not so bad since he only had to do the one Christ exploitation movie. Uh, but yeah, he's not exactly like the main draw either. And he's only in like literally one scene of the movie. You hired Ted McGinley for literally one scene in this movie. And then Thomas Jane is the only other actor I know. And he's only in like three scenes. He's barely in this movie. This movie centers on Alex Neustetter, N-E-U-S-T-A-E-D-T-R, who is best known from the TV show Colony and something called Ithaca. And then played a young version of character in Walking Out, whatever that is. This kid is not... He's apparently best known for a... What is this, CW? Is this why I've never heard of it? USA. No idea who this kid... He's not even one of the main actors on it. He's just a bit player on it. And yet he's supposed to carry this whole movie. And nothing about him makes him... Make, you know, makes him... Makes him compelling. Makes him care. He has no care. He has no charisma. At least nothing in anything I've seen. What's this Ithaca thing? With his older brother off to war, fourteen-year-old telegram messenger Homer McAuley comes of age in the summer of nineteen forty-two, and then he's the main character with Meg Ryan and Sam Shepard, and Tom Hanks apparently. Weird. Uh, but yeah, I he does not bring anything to this role to make it worth watching. It really is just the dullest performance I've ever seen. Even the bully character is boring. Uh, Alex McNichol is, is the guy playing the bully character in this. He's best known as Colton on Transparent. And then apparently he was a character in The Fifth Wave. And then he did something for McFarland USA, which was the Disney... Uh, 
biopic about uh, runners. No idea. He's been a, he's in a whole bunch of stuff coming up, but okay. And then he's Peter Standall in Thirteen Reasons Why. Whoever that is, I don't remember Thirteen Reasons Why, and I try not to go back to it. He's even, but he's bad as the bully character. Like he's just nobody in this movie is interesting in the slightest. Like the only character, the only actress in here, well, the only actor in here with any real presence is Becky G. And that's only because, at least, even then, it's like, she's slight, It's just not as good as her t- role as Trini in, at least in Trini, she was somewhat memorable in uh, the Power Rangers movie. Here, she's just, he, she's literally what everyone thinks of, Meg, of Megan Fox and Transformers. She's literally just the hot girl. Not that, I mean, they try to give her more interesting depth, but Becky G can't can't present that information, and her and her voice makes always makes her sound like she's uninterested. I don't know if that's because she was uninterested. I don't know if it's because she's not a great actress. But she cannot. Whatever kind of depth they tried to give her character here is it falls flat because she always sounds like um, that one character from Family Guy. Oh no, oh no! It, it, here you got a nice robot dog. He's his name is Axel. He's, uh, he seems very nice. Oh no, he's going to attack! Oh no, it looks like he's going to attack me. Oh, but you, oh, but you came in and saved him. Isn't that nice? I think that's um one of uh what's his name? The guy who plays Cleveland Brown's characters. Uh, uh, let me see. I don't remember his name, but uh, I think it's one of Mike Henry's characters. Uh. Yeah, I think it's definitely one of Mike Henry's characters. So yeah, it, it, she says that's what she basically sounds like to me. Gee, you, you know, like gee, you're really hot. Yeah, I'm I'm an artist. I'm I, I'm not like other girls. My mom, you know, like the biggest they try to do is like their her mom is in and the employment of the bully character, but even that doesn't go anywhere. They don't really do anything with that. This is literally a by-the-numbers boy and his magical creature movie, and it does it 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 it, it, it was painful to sit through because it's like yeah I've seen this before yeah I've seen this before I don't care I've seen this before, and like whatever try, interesting stuff they try to do with like the GoPros uh, GoPros attached to 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 dirt bikes and. The you know the stunts that they tried to do with with the buy and then adding in the dog later. I mean the dog prop is cool, but it doesn't sell the movie. Like they don't do much of anything with the prop that you haven't seen in any other, you know, boy and his magical thing movie. Like E.T. is not it, it is a better prop than E.T., but you cared about E.T. You cared about what was happening to E.T. in that movie. You don't really care what's happening to Axel. The only one who really cares is the main character, and he's kind of a whiny douchebag. So, he. So why, why should we care if you can't make us care about any of the characters or even the prop dog? Like, I cared more about the actual wolf in Alpha than I do about this prop dog, and that's that's just a bad. That's just the bad side of the filmmaker. Apparently, this. I, I mentioned this in the last episode. This is from a guy whose last movie was something called Miles. That was in 2015, blurring the boundaries between humanity and technology in the teenage off-roading world of Central California. 
some proof of, it was a proof of concept short film. That was this guy's last movie. It wasn't a feature. It was a short film trying to try, acting as a proof of concept about dirt biking. And there's a reason it didn't go anywhere because nobody cares about dirt biking. It's not. It's not 2005 anymore. Like, who cares about dirt biking besides dirt bikers? If you care about dirt biking, you're most likely a dirt biker. Otherwise, who cares? Like, there's plenty of other extreme sports out there that are more interesting. Like, I don't think I've ever seen Hollywood be able to make dirt biking interesting. I know Disney tried to do that in the mid-2000s as well, in the height of the dirt biking craze, because that was extreme and whatnot. It's, it really is just so... It doesn't bring, it does not bring anything to this, mo- to, to, to this movie. It does not add anything. It, it, this movie just absolutely does not matter. Like, whatever, whatever good, whatever quality was put into the prop of Axel, none of it was put into the care of hiring good actors, writing a decent script. This was just a by-the-numbers Boy and His Creature movie, and all the actors were just running, walking through the motions. Even Thomas Jane, as much as I love him, he's, he's, he's a blip in this movie, in this entire movie. The more prominent character is the more prominent actors are uh, Alex Newstetter and Becky G. And Becky G gets higher billing, and she's just as bland and uninteresting as Newstetter. I don't get the appeal. Like I don't even know Becky G's music. Apparently, she's a musician. She's a pop star uh, who got into acting. And actually, that makes a lot of sense because most of the pop stars that try to get into acting suck at it. Uh, Mariah Carey. Sucked at it so hard she never tried it again. Madonna has consistently sucked at it. Uh, Britney Spears has also sucked at it. Um, Christina Aguilera also sucked at it. Rihanna has has mostly sucked at it. I don't think I... What was a good... She was The best thing she's been in was Ocean's 8. And that's because she at least had a character there for her instead of freaking Battleship. <laughs> uh, yeah, most pop stars that try to get into acting usually suck at it because they're not actors and they and it's usually just ways to pad out their resume it's like hey look they're a multiple they're a multi-threat they're a double threat not only can they not only are they they chart-topping singers they are they're box office gold baby and no they, they aren't because they they usually suck at it and they don't pick good movies they don't get attached to good movies so yeah i have nothing i don't know enough of becky g to say uh, if, if she's a good actress because her role as Trini was fine. Like, what they did with the character was interesting. Switching her from um, Asian to Hispanic and trying to play... The only thing that sucked about Trini is that they would they waffled on whether or not she she was an LGBT character. Like, if she... Like ooh, what she's we're not gonna say, but apparently she also she's she can be just as into girls as she is into boys. Ooh, what ooh, we're 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 uh, orientation baiting. We don't we're not gonna say what what she identifies as, but we're just gonna say it's not straight. Ooh, and like like I don't care if you make her bi. I don't care if you make her uh, like gay i don't care if you make her trans don't what is the point of teasing us 
What does that gain you other than the ability to to get away with it when parents raise a stink because parents are stupid? You know, not the you know the kind of parents that would complain about a gay character in a kid's property are the kind of parents that should not be trusted with children because there's nothing there's nothing wrong with that. There, there's literally nothing wrong with having representation in kids' media. In fact, it's ultimately better because. My sister and I were just talking about this this weekend. I was on my way to my brother's wedding uh, this past weekend. And we were talking about this, how she and I kind of, her to a lesser extent, but especially the later generations after her, she noticed they were, they were much more accepting of, like, uh, mixed-race couples, of, uh, of not being, you know, of having, you know, mul- you know, multiple races within a community, not, not being so, you know, like, not being so bigoted about that sort of thing. And I've even mentioned that Steven Universe has kind of made gender uh, or gender identity and uh, sexual orientation more, you know, more accepted by kids who watch that show because that's what representation does. When you see positive representations of, of minority groups in the media, you come to understand, oh, I understand what's going on. I, okay. I understand that. I have a reference point because of the thing I watch. So, with all of that integration in kids' media in the late 80s and 90s, we came to understand that, oh, yeah, it does not matter what racial makeup we are. We're people. It's not, it wasn't, you know, it was obviously ham-fisted, but it got the job done for the most part. You know, most of the kids who watched that came away with, yeah, that, yeah, that's my friend. Doesn't matter what race he is because that's not important. He's my friend. So, I mean, like, that representation matters, and who cares if you piss off some fundy parents who are going to raise a stink? In fact, that should be better, because wouldn't that make more, wouldn't that create more buzz? It was like the whole thing with Disney saying, oh, our first openly gay character is LeFou, who isn't really openly gay. He dances with a man in drag in one scene, but he's never really officially outed himself as gay. He's just coded gay. But I'm not qualified to make these sort of criticisms really uh, there's plenty of much more um much much better breakdowns of this kind of thing uh on uh queer and uh you know lgbt centered uh cha- youtube channels i highly recommend like people like rantasmo who to break down this sort of stuff in media but yeah anyway i'm I, this is how far off track i am we were talking about freaking axel and I got into gender representation, gender identity, and sexual orientation representation in kids' media because that's more interesting to talk about than this movie. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I want to take one last look at my uh, blandest movies so far. Um, I don't think it's gonna make the top seven. I might put it on the honorable mentions. Actually. Mm-hmm. It's debatable. If it does end up on there, you'll find it at the end of the year. But suffice to say that Axel does nothing for this genre. It it is it is a waste of your time. You're better off just showing your kid like ET or um, even Monster Trucks because you might be able to get a laugh out of Monster Trucks. And it was literally written by a four year old, so your kids may enjoy that. I can't imagine kids just rushing out to see Axel in theaters. You know. This is, this is all, all the effort was put into the dog and it shows because nothing else is as interesting to watch 
<laughs> not the actors, not the story they're telling. It's all about that dog puppet, and it and it, they don't do anything with it except sequel bait, because of course they got a sequel bait. Ugh. Yeah, screw this movie. Salutations, ladies and gentlemen. It's the Popcorn Junkie here for a little Netflix and chat. Alright. So we didn't get searching this week. It's been pushed back to next week, which kind of stinks. It did get a limited release this week, as sort of like a pre-screening sort of thing. Like, oh, we're trying to create buzz with this movie. And the buzz has seemed to, and that seemed to work because the buzz is starting to come out that this movie's good. So we'll see next week about searching. Um, but I did manage to get one more thing in this weekend, and that was um, Disenchantment by Matt Groening. Uh Like I mentioned before, my brother had a, had a wedding this weekend, so I was out of town for, for, for the majority of, of, of my normal movie-watching time. So I didn't get to do uh, one of my Patreon uh, episodes, sadly. Uh, but I was able to get in uh, the, re- the the entirety of Disenchantment this past week. It's only 10 episodes, so that makes it easier. That's like uh, 22 minutes an episode. That's like 220 minutes, which is roughly about what? 220 minutes is about, let's see. 120 is two hours, about four hours worth of material. That's a, it's a quick binge. Um, actually, five hours because it's 22 minutes and there's 10 episodes. So about five hours, uh, a little under five hours. And eh, like, it's not, it, I guess, I mean, that's, the, that's always the kicker is that the, not every first season is going to be a killer. Like, nope. There are very, very rarely do do shows come in the come in swinging after the first season and do great. Like, nobody's favorite ep- episodes of The Simpsons are from the season one or even future. Like, Futurama season one is not anybody's favorite season. So, I mean, the season one is always going to be the weakest of most shows because it takes a while to establish all of the good stuff. And so that's kind of the biggest problem with this one. Not a lot, but the other problem is that it's a lot of sitcom-y uh, storylines going on. Like, let me break down some of the some of the storylines going on in this series. We've got we, uh, we've got the opening, which introduces Bean on the night of her wedding, uh, being tied to a demon played by Eric Andre, Princess uh, Beanie. Uh, being played by Abby Jacobson from uh, Broad City, specific, uh, mainly. Uh, but you've also got, like, storylines of, ooh, um, Bean is, Bean is, you know, going against her dad's wish, you know, like, breaking all kinds of laws so they think she's possessed by a demon. And, uh, ooh, my dad's out of town, time to throw a party! Um, then, and then, like, the, there's a, the worst episodes have to do with Alpho, uh, played by what's his name? He, you know, he's he's become he's he's a small character uh, actor in a lot of comedies. Uh, Nat Faxon, who is best known for um, Roddy in the Way Way Back, he was a writer. He was oh, he was one of the he's one of the Academy Award winning writers of The Descendants. Uh, Manny in Club Dread, Mark and Bad Teacher, 
Um, he plays the voice of Han Solo in Star Wars Detours. <clears throat> uh, he's in Friends from College. The Epic Tale. He plays the Captain Underpants in the Epic Tales of Captain Underpants for Netflix. Blaze and the Monster Machines. He's been. Uh, he plays the voice of Pearl Dameron in Robot Chicken. Dogs in a Park. Trip Tank. So he's a comedic actor. Uh, going all the way back to Club Dread, you know, like I said, Club Dread in 2004. So this guy has been a comedic actor doing minor roles for the most part. And then here he plays sort of the, uh, sort of naive elf character who, who is, who is ultimately revealed to be not, uh, you know, who has a, who has a secret that you've always kind of figured, uh, given, given what they establish about elves in the, in this series. But, um... He the big, the worst episodes have to deal with him uh, crushing on uh, Bean and trying to win her affection. That's what happens in the in the party episode. That's what happens in another episode where um, he pretends he has a girlfriend who uh, who um, who Bean tries to find and ends up being a one eyed giant who. Uh, <laughs> And before Alpha says, "No, it's you I like." So the whole "Will they? Won't they?" crap they pull out, pull through the rest, through the entire series. That's the worst aspect of it. Because I mean, that's the thing. Compare this to um, Verve's Harmon Quest, where well, CISO's now Verve's Harmon, Harmon Quest, where the, you had three main characters: a half orc, a goblin, and a human barbarian, elf barbarian, elf. Half elf barbarian. I forget what. Um, I forget what the what the. Let me pull up Harmon Quest real quick. It's been so. It's already been so long since I watched Harmon Quest. I've already forgotten stuff about it. Um, uh, but yeah, Aaron McAfee's character is a one to say half elf. Let me see. Biaro shift. I don't know, let me pull up the episode guide. I, I'm kind of sad that they, that ended, but hey, I mean, two seasons, that's a good run. That's a good run for, for any for any show. I mean, you had you didn't get stuck with the one season. You had your chance to do more than one, and, you know, sometimes the viewership just isn't there for any shows. Uh, Barbarian turns into town, claiming that dangerous cultists are pursuing her. I, I want to say half-elf. Hold on. Now, now I gotta Google BRO shift. Da, 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 da. That's all IMDb. Redheaded barbarian. Uh, I think she's half elf. I want. I guess. Okay, elven barbarian. So she was elven. Okay, <laughs> these are the these are just the little things I forget, but yeah. Um, so you had an elven barbarian woman, you had a half orc male ranger, I want to say, and then a, and a a male goblin thief. But at no point were they ever trying to hook up with each other. There wasn't this sort of will they won't they because there didn't need to be this sort of like trying to ship the characters. It was just think of it what you will. There didn't need to be some kind of canon shipping, and I think trying to you know, play the will they, won't they thing with 
Elfo and Bean is the worst aspect of Disenchantment. I would love for them to just have Elfo finally get over his affections toward Bean and be her friend. I think that would be the best. Yeah, I, th- I, I think that would be the best thing for the series. Then you can just have the three of them and their dynamic: the naive do-gooder Elfo, the you know literal ba- the literal devil on the shoulder that is Lucy Eric Andre, who's who was, you know, kind of low-key the best character in the entire series. And then you've got Bean as sort of the center. center. Like, um, so, like, Alpha would be the super ego, uh, Lucy would be the id, and Bean would be the ego. That, pa- that, that pairing, that dynamic would work great. You don't really need the whole, like, oh, Elfo, but Elfo's just so in love with Bean and he can't tell her her feelings. And they're always like that, will they, won't they? That, everything about that is the worst. Because it, 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 was, it was lame when they did it. And the lame sitcom trope that continues to get done and we don't need it. It's best when, when they don't have it. You know, have Elfo be like a do-gooder and make him care about Bean as a friend and want her doesn't want her to get in trouble and wants to be the good wants to be the you know the angel on the shoulder but he, you know he, but also had given him a character besides like oh he's got such a crush on her and will she ever you know will she ever uh, share in his uh, share in his in his devotion to her i don't know it's it's weak uh that being said there are like i think my favorite episodes are the finale which is which is the best episode of the entire first season. Uh, and and Faster Princess Kill Kill, which is another thing I want to get into. But that one deals with Bean trying to find a career path to be of use to the kingdom instead of just being a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, a figurehead, somebody who does literally nothing in the castle, which is part of her main arc is finding a purpose in life. She feels... You know, royalty doesn't suit her. She wants to be good at something and have you know have a meaning and ha- and do something for the kingdom rather than just be married off. And in that, in Faster Princess Kill Kill, she tries to be an executioner, and I think that was the most interesting episode because it dealt with her trying to be you know trying to do this other other you know this uh, this uh, unprincessly role. That trying to be an executioner, like oh hey, here's a princess who's great at being a tor- you know, great at torture and being an executioner, and like it doesn't go all the way with that premise, but what they do, where they do go with it, is in- is at least interesting to say the least. Um, and of course, there's yeah, you got references to Grimm's fairy tales and a lot of um, you know to- high fantasy stuff like Tolkien. I don't know if they have any um, Game of Thrones references. I haven't noticed one yet. But there's plenty of, like, um, yeah, there's plenty of high fantasy references that you would get. But uh, the other thing is, there's a couple, a couple of the um, uh, titles are good. Uh, you got the opening one is literally an X, a Y, and a Z walk into a bar. Uh, for whom the bell tolls is referenced, the Prince of Darkness is referenced, which is a movie about vampires. I think what was Prince of Darkness? The pr- Prince of the Prince of Darkness. I think it's. Tri- I, I mean, it's definitely referring to Satan, but I think that was a movie. 
Prince of Darkness, 1987, John Carpenter movie uh, about Satan worship. Research team finds a mysterious cylinder in a deserted church. If opened, it could mean the end of the world. That's what that was. Yeah. So I think it's, it might be a reference to that, but it, you know, if nothing else, it's a reference to uh, Satan. Uh, Castle Party Massacre is a reference to Birthday Party Massacre. Faster Princess Kill Kill is a reference to Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which is an old exploitation movie. Pomp and Circumstance is referenced. Love's Tender Rampage is the one where that features the giant. Not sure what that's in reference to. Uh, Love's Tender Fury, which is a New York Times bestselling historical romance. And um, tells the enthralling, passionate story of a young English woman. That can't be it. Lil's Tender Fury by Jennifer Wilde. Um, 1976, so I guess that must be it. So I guess that's what that's a reference to. Um, Limits of Immortality, not sure what that's a reference to. Let me see the... I'm sure these are all... They, they all have trivia dedicated to... No? Oh, re, it does... Okay, yeah, they're all you know, references to Goldfinger. Uh, in some of the episodes. So there's like little references. There's little pop culture references here and there. So yeah, no word on what that title refers to. To Thine Own Self Be True is referenced from Shakespeare. And then like Dreamland Falls uh, is the title of the final episode of the season. And you know, there people have noted that there are uh, references to like Simpsons and Futurama and, and background shots. Uh, which is, you know, which is neat, but it, do, it doesn't make it a, a reason to watch a series. You have to watch, want to watch a series other than as an Easter egg hunt, you know? So, this, so, yeah, it, it ends on a, on a better note than it started. So, it'll be interesting to see what they do for a season two. Because they'd set up plenty of stuff for a season two. And they've already um, greenlit it. So, we'll see how, we'll see in a couple of years how that turns out. As, so far, it is the weakest of the Greenig shows, but I'm hopeful that it does get better. Like I said, Eric Andre is low-key the best character in the entire show because he gets to be the pure id character. The one who's just like, yeah, the, the, what's the most evil thing to do? So he's like the fun evil character. He's chaotic evil, and those are the best kind of characters. And the fact that he's not a full-on villain, but he's like just he, you know, he's just a bad friend who gets you into trouble. That, that works. Um... Yeah, and then, and then some. Pe- I heard some people uh, comparing this to Hulu's The Awesomes, and I would say Disenchantment is about on par with the writing. Some some good, some bad. Not exactly top, you know, not exactly top tier writing wise. But I'll say this: Disenchantment has far and away better animation. The animation here is like. Just you know, slightly better than present day Simpsons in terms of its fluidity, in terms of its you know, its, it's especially that final episode that kicks it into high gear. I get they can't do that for every episode, but for the most part, Disenchantment has got some decent animation to it. It's just the characters aren't all there. I do kind of have a, I take issue with Abby Jacobson just because I don't feel like she adds anything to the role. Like I get, I don't know like who. I feel like was, there could have been a better voice actress for this character. I don't, I don't get anything from her performance. I feel, I don't know. I guess it also depends on the writing. I don't think Bean is given the most interesting writing compared to like her role in uh, Broad City, which she helped write. So I don't know. 
it's 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 a rough start, but we'll wait and see. it's uh, but we have a second season to look forward to, so we'll see if it gets any better. But for the most part, Disenchantment starts off on a weak note. But if you want to check it out, you know, I don't think you'll be that disappointed. Wow, that's high praise. I don't think you'll be that disappointed in it. Nah, I mean, you can you can probably skip it. Maybe wait till season two. Try season two when it comes out. I'm sure there'll be a recap. Uh, and see if you like it then. Maybe it'll be... Because I think by, with all the stuff established by that point, maybe it'll be better. But we'll see. This first season... I think that's the one thing. First seasons are always the roughest because you've got to establish so much stuff and you're always trying to find your footing. Like, the first season of Community... It's not. It's definitely not the best of that. So, I mean, it's hard to hold it. I mean, once again, BoJack Horseman, the first season is not the best of that series either. So, I mean, it takes a while for a TV show to find its footing. And you got to get past that stump, you know, those first steps. So, we'll see how it turns out uh, with season two. And with all that being said, uh, that's the end of the reviews. And when we come back, we'll be talking about them puppets. Hello, everyone, and welcome. I'm Melody. I'm Max. I'm Dexter. I'm Diana. And I'm John. And together, we host the book review and discussion podcast, Living in the Stacks. Every two weeks, we take the time to read a book and then meet online to discuss it. We'll talk about what we liked, what we didn't like, and if we'd read the book again. Whatever the genre, whoever the author, whether it's good or bad, we'll read anything once. So if you want to join us, you can find us, Living in the Stacks, available through Gumby Cat Networks. some research on this topic because I wanted to go in fully informed and I, and we're going to be talking about puppets. Puppets in film. Now, I don't, I mean, if I wanted to do the history of puppeteering, that goes back to the freaking you, you know, <laughs> early days of civilization. Like, every ancient civilization, for the most part, from the Greeks to the Chinese to the Egyptians, all had some form of puppetry. Like, literally, if you go to the Wikipedia page alone, you can find so many references to everybody, every single continent, even indigenous tribes, having some basic form of puppetry going on. So puppetry is, like, almost inherent in uh, in civilization. But as if, if we want to talk about uh, puppetry in film, you we want to talk about uh, the early... That goes back even to the early days of cinema. For the most part, puppetry was a form of special effects, and even up through the early days of CGI, puppetry is was kind of the biggest form of special effects work, uh, be it stop motion puppets or even uh, you know the props that, that we like. It's like even this movie Axel featured a prop that was puppeteered. So I mean, puppeteering as a as a special effect has been done since the days of Georges Méliès. Uh, in the ni- in in the early 1900s, and then continued by uh, German director Fritz Lang. So puppeteering was always part and parcel of filmmaking. It was the best form of special effects work for the longest time. And then, but it uh, took until 1929 as part of the vaudeville circuits when a short film called Dimples and Tears 
was shot starring puppets as the characters. Instead of featuring puppets as special effects, you had puppets as the main characters. So it took until it took about 30 years uh, from the onset of cinema and filmmaking for puppeteering to make to, for uh, films to center on puppets. And even then, it was just a short film. So it's not like I mean, this was before the days of feature films. And then, of course, after the early successes of like the Fleischer brothers and Walt Disney, and I'm trying to and um, who was the other one? There was somebody else, but basically, with animation also rising in these in these circuits, you you saw puppeteers being like, "Well, I can do that. I can do that even cheaper." So you had puppeteers starting to step into filmmaking as part of the art form, and. So there's a lot of these early sort of vaudevillian acts, you know, be it the ventriloquist puppets or the marionettes. And so those will get featured in short films and especially on the early days of TV with the likes of Howdy Doody and what eventually led to our first feature-length film starring puppets, the Thunderbirds are the Thunderbirds adaptation uh, from the TV series at the time in the UK, Thunderbirds Are Go and Thunderbirds 6. Both of those were the first puppet-based films, and the first for the longest time. They just adapted the TV series into feature-length films, and those were the first times puppets were used as the main, you know, form of animation in feature-length film. Because for the most part, it's either hand-drawn animation or puppets were either used as a special effect. The first time puppets were the central character characters and art form was with Thunderbirds Are Go on the big screen. And even then, there's not much known about it, like box office-wise, how successful it was. Uh, the first real... But it, what really kicked it off is, of course, Jim Henson. Because for the most part, puppeteering was uh, marionettes, which is kind of what you see with Thunderbirds Are Go, or the ventriloquist dummies, which is what, um, for the longest time, a lot of... Um, a lot of puppeteers used was the ventriloquist act. And so you got, um, what, what was, what was the, who was the weirdo in freaking fun and fancy free, uh, that took over for no reason. Uh, cause he was a big one in the forties and fifties. There we go. Um, let me pull him up. Charlie McCarthy as himself. He has his own IMDb page. And then Ed- Edgar Bergen, uh, who does Charles McCarthy and Mortimer Snurd was the biggest puppeteer um, for the longest time. He he did he had the whole ventriloquist act going on, and so he just basically took over the second half of Fun and Fancy Free for no reason. But um, yeah, that's kind of so. You either had marionette shows or you had ventriloquists, and then it took until Jim Henson kind of pioneered puppetry as an art form. You know, not to put, not to blow up too much window of his ass, but yeah, Henson decided to take the ventriloquist out of the act and focus solely on the puppet. And so you had, that's how you kind of came into the likes of the Muppets and the Sesame Street characters. And so many of what we recognize as puppeteer, as puppets comes from Henson. Henson, I mean, he, he, he broke it down from like wooden dolls and and wooden pup and wooden caricatures and broke it and made it even cheaper. He made it with felt and cloth, and he was able to just manipulate the cloth and to look like a creature, and then use the same tactic but taken off, taken off. But you're not focusing on on the ventriloquist act; you're focusing on the puppet itself. 
So the puppeteer is in the background. The puppet is the character. And Hensick pioneered that for the most part. Because otherwise it was just marionettes. I mean, you kind of got that with marionettes. But the marionettes were always kind of stiff and motionless. Henson was always... And even to this day, even in Happy Time Murders, they try to pioneer what you can do with puppets on film. And Happy Time Murders is best... Best... um, You know, best... The best thing about it is the fact that it... So much of it... And they show you during the end credits sequence, I forgot to mention this, just how much work for the puppeteers went into it. Even the puppeteers got a chance to improv and do, like, jokes on set because they would screw up a line or something. And so the puppeteers were just as much as part of the comedy and part of the improvisation of stuff as the actors themselves. So these are all just top-notch puppeteers, and the work is phenomenal. And, they, and it shows you just how much work goes into trying to bring these puppets to life in, uh, in the way it happens on screen. And it's even, like, I mentioned this, um, I'll mention this more in the uh, Patreon corner, but I did watch Bubba uh, Treasure Island as part of the Patreon tie-in for the week. And even there, you saw just how much work went into making those puppets, like, be in an action movie. It was an action movie with the Muppets. So, and it looked great. So, Henson is always, I love Henson for wanting to always do more with the puppet, with puppetry. That's always been my fascination with Henson. And so, it was with the rise of Henson, you know, started out in the 60s. Then as the 70s rolled around, you know, he helped found uh, Sesame Workshop and um, the Jim Henson Company and focused a lot on the Muppets themselves. First on Saturday Night Live as a as a recurring uh, sketch. And then finally getting their own shows and establishing characters. And eventually leading into film with 1979's The Muppet Movie. Which I think is still the highest grossing puppet based movie of all time. Like it, 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 it went, it was, it, it had, it worked, blah, blah, blah. It was gangbusters uh, for the time period. I think it made like $100 million unadjusted for inflation. Let me pull up the numbers real quick. Not the dash numbers, but let me pull up Muppet Movie. Um, The Muppet Movie caught... uh, Raised $65 million. Okay, $65 million domestically. So wait, let's go back to the wiki. Muppet movie. Cost $8 million to make and raised and earned $76.6 million overall in the box, uh, from box office uh, numbers. So how do we adjust for inflation? Yeah, compared to uh, even um, 2011's The Muppets, it it adjusted for inflation. The Muppet movie doubled what The Muppets made in 2011. So it's more than doubled, actually. The Muppet movie was able to out was able to. Out, it's still the highest grossing of all of the Muppet films. So it, I mean, it, it came out the gate 
bankrolled went up so much because, like, like I said, that was eight million dollars in, and even though it was in nineteen seventy nine dollars, that's you know that's still pretty on the that's still on the cheap side for the most part. You know, most of those most you know most films would cost most films cost about that much. So I mean, the fact that it made almost a hundred million dollars in nineteen you know sixty five million dollars in nineteen seventy nine, and ultimately seventy six million dollars overall, and adjusted for inflation, over two hundred million dollars. Yeah, the the Muppet movie is what was, was a smash success, and Henson would continue to see a lot of success through with the Muppets. You know, each one of the Muppet movies, for the most part, be, get, always made back its money. You know, it, they saw did start to see diminishing returns, but those early Muppet, the, that initial Muppet trilogy, Muppet movie, The Great Muppet Caper, and Muppets Take Manhattan, all easily bankrolled each other because they just would continue to print money. They were so success- they were so successful. It was the other stuff at the time that couldn't hack it. You had the Dark Crystal, which only, it took subsequent re-releases through through like Fathom events and whatnot to make back its money. Uh, so it did eventually make back some of its pro- its budget. Labyrinth still flopped. Elmo and Grouchland still flopped, and of course the infamous Muppets from Space. All uh, they all just tanked. Muppet Treasure Island cost so much that it couldn't make back its money, and Muppets, Muppet Christmas Carol did what did manage to make back its budget, but wasn't as successful as its pre- as the previous entries. So, so, the, so I mean, yeah, the Muppets did eventually see diminishing returns until Disney did bring them back in 2011, but even then, there wasn't enough to sustain the franchise. Sadly, I mean, it would it would be profitable, but it would not. It would not be profitable enough to keep going, and even the TV series that they tried to do with that was in the line, in the same vein as The Office. I think was misguided. I feel like if they did a variety show, a la you know Saturday Night Live, like they did in the seventies, it would have been better off. That's what I really want, where you can have Saturday Night Live and you have guests like uh, you know Ariana Grande, and then have Ariana Grande perform her songs with the Muppets. That kind of stuff on, like, a semi-weekly basis, maybe not every week, but, like, every other week, maybe, I think that would work perfectly, you know? I th- I still think that would work great. I still think people, like, if somebody wants to do a great SNL, like, if ABC wants to compete with Saturday Night Live, they would, they would release, they would have the Mupp- they would have a Muppet uh, Variety Hour on Saturday Night's, uh, be- you know, right, you know, cutting into Saturday Night Live. I think, I still think... I still think the Muppets would draw that much attention because the people loved that Muppet show, and if you had that kind of variety show mentality and you kept the, um, you know, the whole sort of back, the Muppet show is is phenomenal in its execution and what and, and its humor. And I feel like if you did that again and you kept that same thing, but with the current puppets and the current, um, you know, current writers, you could easily do another version of the Muppet show as a variety variety hour and you had special guest hosts and special guest musical and special musical guests and it would be it would be way better than Saturday Night Live is right now which isn't saying much like Matt TV even as doldrums is better than Saturday Night Live is right now um but yeah i mean that i'm getting off topic cuz that yeah um Henson has kind of dominated puppetry in film like, here's the numbers, how they break down according to Wikipedia. Aside from, like, puppete- puppets being used as special effects, um, 
There are 22 major puppet-based feature films. Of those, 13 are tied to the Henson Company, be it uh, the Mupp- through the Muppets, or through Sesame Street, or through things like Henson Alternative, a la um, Happy, Time, Happy Time Murders. And of, and of the 22, 8 are, eight are uh, marionettes. So there really is only one other puppet movie that isn't Henson and is not marionettes. I forget which one it is. Puppet films. Let me take another look. Yeah, Hen- Thunderbirds are go. The Thunderbirds movies were the first in the sixties. Those were marionettes. Uh, then you have Henson, 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 Henson. Oh, never mind. That was a short film. So there's actually twenty one. So yeah, thirteen of the twenty one puppet films are are um, are Henson, and the other eight are marionettes. So keep that. So so yeah, remember that. Uh, actually, wait, no. Um, there's one that is puppets that is not. So that is 22 because there is one that is not marionettes, but is not Henson, and that is 1989's Meet the Feebles, which I'm yo. Know, it, it, you'd think there'd be like one really crappy DVD release that was just a VHS rip with some weak special features like trailers or something, but no, there's there really. I have no idea where I can legit find it other than like a Goodwill, uh, somebody donated their VHS or like through eBay. I'm sure it's available, you know, as part of a VHS rip, but yeah, it's not. Why it's not exactly like widely available for people to rent or stream, you know. Nobody has the streaming rights to meet the feebles. And then there's even, and then even, and of course, there are four upcoming besides the Happy Time Murder. You know, now that the Happy Time Murders has released, there are, there are four upcoming puppet, um, puppet based movies in production. They, uh, and they're all through the Henson Company. One is, one is a Dark Crystal sequel or prequel. I'm not sure how they plan to go through it, but it's tied into the, to the, to the Dark Crystal. One is a Labyrinth remake, which I think is entirely misguided. You, the, I don't know who you would get to replace the iconic performance that David Bowie gave in that movie. I, I think like, it's almost sacrilegious. Um, one is uh, the Fraggle Rock movie that they want to do. And then one is a tie-in that Henson is doing with screen novelties who does stop-motion animation. They, they are mainly known for, like, if you've seen a... Rec- if you've seen a um, Rankin Bass parody, like the stop motion Rankin Bass parodies that SpongeBob does. That's screen novelties. Um, what is some of their other stuff? Uh, damn it! Hold on, I hit the wrong button. <laughs> Here we go. Uh, they they produced the pilot that became Robot Chicken. They did Moral Oral for um, Cartoon Network as well. Uh, they did stop motion animation for the Flintstones, Chowder, Marvelous Adventures of Flapjack. Um, they restored the actual original Rudolph and Santa puppets from Rankin Bass's um, move from Rankin Bass's special. Uh, they helped finish Ray Harryhausen's Tortoise and the Hare uh, short film, which was the last thing he was working on before he died. Uh, and then they did a Monster High uh, movie in 2010. 
but they're mainly known for TV. They did stuff for Courage the Cowardly Dog, Drew Carey's Green Screen Show, once again, SpongeBob Square, the SpongeBob SquarePants movie they did stuff for, um, uh, Billy and Mandy, Ele- The Electric Company 2009 as part of Sesame Workshop, uh, Family Guy, Mad, the, uh, animated sketch comedy show for Cartoon Network. They did stuff for the 85th Academy Awards. Adventure Time. Cloudy with a Chance Me Balls 2. They did the end credits. Harvey Beaks. They did stuff. Uh, they did episodes 4. They did the sock puppet sequence in the Captain Underpants movie. So, Screen Novelties is mainly a stop motion company. And Henson is teaming up with them for a, for a new feature length film called Monster Safari. And... Which was which seems to be based on a short uh, from the Nicktoons variety series Shorts in a Bunch, which um, which featured uh, Prometheus and Bob, a town called Panic, uh, the Nicktoon Mister Meaty, and one of the pilots that was ma- produced as part of that Nickelodeon show was Monster Safari. And so Henson and Screen Novelties are going to team up to try and bring that pilot into a feature-length film. Uh, no idea how it's going to turn out. No idea about the pilot and what it's, what it's about. So we'll see how that turns out. But yeah, Henson is trying to reinvigorate puppeteering at, uh, in feature film. And if this had been more successful, maybe people would be on board. But sadly, I, the, once again, Happy Time Murders didn't have as much back. Like once again, if the movie was good, people would 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 have word of mouth would have been would have caught around. But I think people were, kind of saw the writing on the wall for this one. And I think the other thing is, puppetry is basically uh, be, better utilized on TV. You know, going back all the way to Sesame Street, uh, you had people better utilizing. Pu- you had um, Howdy Doody, of course, as as a marionette. Uh, you know, the ventriloquist dummies of the fifties. You all then you had Sesame Street, Henson stuff with Sesame Street and the Muppet Show, and then you know if it, and then by with Henson's um re, you know, reintroduction, then you had the things like the Marty Sid and Marty Croft shows, uh, and then you had the parodies of stuff like that like, with Wonder Shows in and Greg the Bunny. Uh, there's even Henson is even doing CG animation now that ties into their puppetry style, so. Puppetry is kind of, you know, puppetry is best utilized mainly for kids' entertainment. And, but they do manage to get it. Avenue Q was one of the longest running uh, uh, Broadway shows and beat out, I believe, Wicked for the Academy, for the Tony Award for best musical that year. Hold on. Let me see what, let me see Avenue Q. What, what it won because that's the other thing too avenue q i am shocked did not get added has not had the rights made for a netflix series or something you know either a either a movie that's done in the style of a sesame street parody or a tv series that's done in the, as a parody of sesame street i am shocked that they haven't they haven't spun this off in some way or adapted it in some way but let me see um School edition, promotional events, cast recording, critical reception. Here we go. 2004 Tony Award won for Best Musical and Best um, Book. So 2004 was Boy From Oz, Caroline or Change, and Wick. Yes, I was right. Avenue Q beat out Wicked for Best Musical at the Tonys that year. 
So, so once again, I am shocked that nothing has come from Avenue Q of all places. How has nobody tapped into it? Let me see something. I want to see something else. What? Let me go back to the top of the wiki. Critical Reception Awards and nominations. Broder cast recording. Productions. Musical numbers. Casting. Synopsis. Background. Let me go to the end of the background. See if there's anything else. Dedicated to his memory. Oh, it was dedicated to the memory of Gary Coleman after he died. Which, yeah. Oh, um, uh, so that was weird. They initially offered Gary Coleman to play himself in the original production, but Coleman never showed up to uh, discuss it and eventually tried to sue for uh, defamation of character, but ultimately he threatened to sue but never did. And then the shows have since gone on to dedicate, um, well, I think the, the productions after his death were dedicated to him, um, and then he remains in the show with modified dialogue. But, yeah, it's... I guess maybe that's why they don't try to make a um, a movie version. Because, I mean, Gary Coleman, the character in Avenue Q, is kind of a standard. Like, I couldn't imagine, like, saying, Hey, it's Wilmer Valderrama from that 70s show or something, you know? Like, I don't know what the equivalent would be to try and try and replace the Gary Coleman character in Avenue Q. So maybe that's why they haven't touched it is they don't want to seem uh, in bad taste with depicting uh, Gary Coleman's character uh, after, you know, since his passing. I don't know, but yeah, I'm sure I'm, I'm still shocked that they haven't tried anything with it. You know, maybe even if they don't do the, even if they re- do, even if they did replace the Gary Coleman character with somebody, uh, some other, uh, you know, one you know, one hit wonders, so to speak, of TV stars. I don't know. I don't know what you. I don't know who you'd get to replace them. I don't know who the equivalent, the modern day equivalent of Gary Coleman would be. Send your send who send your opinions of who the modern day equivalent of Gary Coleman is to Popcorn Junkie Podcast at gmail dot com. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm still I still think you could you could you should you you could be able to do Avenue Q either as a film or as a television series. I'm just shocked that nobody's tried it is all. And I don't know where the rights are with it yet. So, yeah, I think I think the problem is, though, that puppetry has always worked better on television. And not only has it worked better on television, it's always been utilized as part of kids programming. So it's hard to say that, hey, it's it's the same thing with adult animation. It's hard to break people of the mindset that this thing that has been mainly geared towards their children is also for adults. Japan hasn't had this problem with animation, but a lot of cultures have always used puppetry to entertain children. So the idea of you're using that for adults is never quite, it has never really stuck with people. And, you know, it's, it's a, there's a reason why Meet the Feebles isn't so readily available. Yet every single Muppet movie you can probably find to rent or buy through streaming, you know? Suffice to say that, yeah, I, I don't know if you could, I, th- I don't think the audience is there for cinemas to support a puppet to support non-family friendly puppet movies. I think adult based puppet comedy is better suited for television. It just isn't there. The audience, and and we're going to get into the box office uh, this as well. And that's going to kind of back up my point. Uh, The audience just isn't there for, uh, unless you can get really good stories to make it worth cinematic, seeing it in theaters, it's better suited for streaming and television. 
I just think that's just how it is. Um, so yeah, I would love to see more interesting puppetry in film, but I don't think it, unless the writing's there to back it up, I don't think it's going to be, I think it's just going to be relegated to TV and streaming. So yeah, uh, that about does it for the discussion. So let's get into this week's Patreon corner. And now a stopover on Patreon corner. Like I mentioned, I wasn't able to do a um, make a better movie on Short Circuit this week just because, you know, I got tied up in family issues. So I, I, was, I was only able to get the much along for Muppet Treasure Island out. And I got to say, it holds up pretty well. Uh, most of the effects still are still good. Uh, the only thing I will say is that uh, I did find out more about the um, main actor in it. I've already forgotten his name, sadly. But, yeah, Tim Curry is phenomenal. Uh, you even had little, um, little, you know, you had minor characters played by Billy Billy Connolly, who sadly is facing a lot of um, uh, health issues at the moment. I think he's running, going through dementia or Alzheimer's, which is terrible to hear because he's he was such a powerful comedic talent. And I, it, it sucks that he's, he's, he's on, the, you know, his, his mind is not, is being taken. Somebody else said the same thing about uh, Tim Conway um, when when it turned out he's going through a similar issue. And yeah, guys like Billy Connolly and Tim Conway, the worst thing that can happen to them is that their mental mental faculties have been taken from them because that was that was part of their that was part of who they were. Um, you also had a minor bit from Jennifer Saunders of absolutely fabulous in there, but Kevin Bishop. The kid who plays Jim Hawkins in Muppet Treasure Island has gone on to have his own t- uh, sketch show on B- on, on uh, British television, as well as do consistent uh, sketch comedy work throughout the 2000s and 2010s. I had no idea this guy had grown up to be a pre- a, 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 a prominent sketch comedian. Like he's even on Tracy Ullman's show uh, for Showtime, I believe. Tracy Ullman's show, which yeah, HBO. HBO even. So yeah, Tracy Lucy Montgomery, who was also featured on Disenchantment. So I mean, he is, I didn't realize he became such a prominent British uh, sketch sketch comedian and improv comedian. So I mean, humble beginnings, I guess, because he's probably best known as Jim Hawkins from Up Treasure Island. But yeah, he's had his own, he even, he had his own show on, on British television for the longest time. And he even got to be in, um, this thing called Star Stories, which looked great. That was about that was basically reenacting stories about celebrity, famous British celebrities. He got to play Elton John, Tony Blair, uh, George Michael, God. Bono presents Christ to my story. Oh, that's beautiful. Uh, there's so much British television. I feel like I'm missing out on. I have no idea how to access it, like how, where it's available. You know, so I have to start. You know, that's another thing, too. Uh, British uh, listeners, be sure to send ways for Americans to access some of these cool shows. And hopefully I can get a chance to talk about them because there's just there's just so much cool stuff I feel like I'm missing out on just by being across the pond. But, yeah, uh, Muppet Treasure Island still holds up. Like I said, it's an action movie featuring the Muppets. And it's really good. And the action's, the action's actually better than a lot of the stuff that this came out. I watched this after Mile 22, and the action is done better in Muppet Treasure Island than in Mile 22. Let that sink in. Uh, not everything, hold, not all the jokes hold up, but for the most part, everything does hold up. 
the Muppet stuff holds up. The songs, for the most part, hold up. Uh, Tim Curry is just a gift to mankind. And it's, it's, a, it's a solid kids movie. It works. St- after, after 20 years, it still works. And I would still recommend you go see it. And if you want, you can also listen to my commentary track by donating to Patreon. Once again, uh, all this stuff is made available through patreon.com. You can, as long, you can donate as little as $1 a month and you can have access to the entire library of Munchalongs and Make It Better Movies. And the main goal right now is to try and get up to $10 a month. If we can hit that, I will start allowing patrons to start requesting their own stuff. And then after that, we'll, we'll work our way through other goals. But for right now, I've done away with the tier system. Everybody who donates from as little as a dollar to as much as how much they are uh, fiscally capable of will get every single reward made available to them. After, the, after hearing uh, Jim Sterling break it down, I'm like, why am I using a tiered system? Especially since I'm a, you know, I'm still a minor, enti- a minor blip, uh, a speck in the, you know, in the world of internet uh, media criticism and entertainment. I, I do not need to have a tiered system for patrons. And suffice to say that I sh- you should not be limiting patrons to what they can afford. To, uh, you know, th- to say that you have to be able to afford to get better rewards it's kind of, you know, kind of, kind of, it's kind of, it kind of stinks, ultimately. Not, nothing against the guys who do it. It's just, you know, the tiered system, it, it's flawed. So I did away with it entirely. And I, 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 you know, I, I say, hey, you can donate as little or as much as you want. As much, I don't want you to donate more than you're capable of donating, though. And, and you'll always be thanked. And you'll always receive uh, some form of compensation as be- for being a patron of the podcast. Uh, and, I, and, and thank you for supporting me, uh, whoever you are out there. <laughs> so with all that being said, let's take a look at this week's box office report. And now the Popcorn Junkie checks in with this week's box office report. I already kind of gave away some of this weekend's... Uh, Numbers suffice to say that uh, Happy Time Murders couldn't unseat the the second uh, the the number one movie that for for uh, for a second for the second week in a row. Uh, but let's take a look at the who's been dropping out. Uh, actually, most of the, the only one to really drop out of the top seven was Black Klansman, who dropped down to number eight uh, with five point three million dollars. My nephew actually saw it and. Liked it for the most part, but once again, the problem with Spike Lee is that he is in your face, he is blunt, he uses a hammer, a jackhammer, to, uh, he uses a chainsaw when talking about his subject matter. So, hey, it's successful, it's probably one of the, how, how successful is it in, um, in, in the, in the, in the, uh, pantheon of Spike Lee joints? I'm, mm. Let me see. Spike Lee. Here we go. Uh, is there a way to do... Here we go. Uh, so far, the highest grossing is Inside Man, uh, with Malcolm X behind it, and then the, apparently he directed the original Kings of Comedy. And then you got Jungle Fever. This is number five out of his top five uh, unadjusted for inflation. Adjusted for inflation, this is only number ten. But, yeah, so, so I mean, this is, this is already growth... Uh, unadjusted for inflation, this has already grossed more than Do the Right Thing, and it's neck and neck with Jungle Fever. I think after next week, it'll probably outgross Jungle Fever, and 
and it's and it's number ten out of his top ten for when you adjust for inflation. But if he can, but after next week, I'm assuming he's already going to outgrow probably both Summer of Sam and, and School Days, and maybe even Mo Better Blues. So he's this could easily be top top five unadjusted for inflation because adjusted for inflation, his highest grossings are Inside Man, Malcolm X, Jungle Fever, Original Kings of Comedy, and Do the Right Thing. Uh, we'll see if he if this can outgross even Do the Right Thing adjusted for inflation, but. Yeah, um, yeah, Spike. So that this is doing doing good stuff for Spike Lee. Like, well, his last movie was Chirac, which only grossed a million dollars overall. So the fact that he went from, let's take a look at this. Uh, after Inside Man, he did Miracle at Saint Anna, which only made, which barely made um, eight million dollars. Red Hook Summer didn't even break a million. Old Boy only grossed two million. Uh, overall, and then Chirac also only grossed two million. I was looking at opening weekends, so uh, his last couple of movies have not been all that successful. Uh, but but so this is this, I don't see this outgrossing Inside Man, which is his highest grossing movie to date. But it could easily be top. You know, he's def- it's definitely probably going to be it's definitely top ten of Spike Lee's uh, successful movies. Adjusted for inflation, and then it could easily be, you know, top, you know, top ten, top five adjusted for inflation. So hey, good for him, man. He's doing, you know, he, you know, he's got, you know, he's he's doing well for himself. And then the only one to premiere outside of uh, the top ten. Well, we've got a couple premiering outside of the top ten. Uh, well, uh, outside of the top seven. Uh, Papillon premiered in limited release only in five hundred theaters. Searching only opened in nine theaters this weekend. And yet it grow it still grossed three hundred and sixty thousand dollars. So it only show it only aired in nine theaters. So let's take that let's ta- let's take let's do that math. Three hundred sixty thousand dollars. Three sixty thousand divided by nine. That means each theater grossed forty thousand dollars over the weekend for searching. Now let's take a look at the norm. Normally it's that that means. If we apply that math to the normal like thousand, let's let's lowball it five hundred. Let's say it's in the same amount of theaters as Papillon. So we multiply that average by five hundred. So that's forty thousand times five hundred could easily make twenty million dollars uh, if one once it opens wide. So. That that's 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 some not that's not some bad you know that's a that's not a bad chunk of change for being in nine theaters. It it out it, it did better than a lot of other indie movies for being only in nine theaters. Like most of the stuff, it's like it's not doing better than stuff like Eighth Grade or The Incredibles even. Uh, but yeah, it, for being for premiering opening in nine theaters and. And being just outside of the top twenty, that's impressive. So we'll see what happens next week. I I I, I could imagine that we were. I would not be shocked if we replaced one number one one Asian led movie for another next week. But we'll see. Uh, and then Papillon was a uh, remake of the movie with Steve McQueen, and I've been not hearing good things about it. And it's been slowly delayed time and again for week for months on end so who knows 
But yeah. Uh, and then, of course, premiering at number nine is Axel with only $2.9 million. Does it say how much it cost? Of course not. Why would it? So let's take a look at the wiki. Let's see how much a wiki says it cost. Come on. I've heard, I've seen it done a a dash XL and a P and then Axel with periods AXL. Uh, so I don't know which it is. Ten million dollars. It only costs ten million dollars. Okay, that's not bad. Premiering with three point five million estimated, and I'm seeing two point nine from from uh from uh domestic numbers and no word on foreign box office yeah that's a bad opening it couldn't even like it, it it's it looks like it's going to struggle to even make it back its budget even so we'll see how that turns out it only cost 10 million dollars and it couldn't even make make back that initial 10 opening weekend so that stinks uh more people are seeing alpha than than this movie which is which which hey good it's just it's just it just sucks that alpha which hey actually alpha is our number 7 so let's talk about it. Alpha dropped down from number five to number seven, brought in $5.6 million this weekend, and it still cost $50 million to make, and it still only grossed $20 million overall and $27 million uh, worldwide. It's, it's a flop, and it stinks that it's a flop because I think Sony just screwed it over. It, 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 it should have st- stayed in March. It should not have kept people, you know, dragging along I, sony botched this big time and it's and it's and it's and it's and it's, i hate to see that happen but yeah it, it, it i i if you have if you get the chance i do recommend you go see it it's a solid movie in its own right it's just sony you blockheads you you screwed it up again dropping down from number three to number six is mile 22 which only brought in six million dollars this weekend Bring its domestic total up to twenty-five million and its global total up to thirty-one million. Two weeks in a row still hasn't made back its budget. Thank you, thank you. I hope it doesn't make back any amount of its budget. I don't. I hope it barely. I don't hope it just barely makes back its budget. Oh, by the end of its run, because this movie sucked and they sequel baited so hard for this. Oh, I hope nobody sweeps in at the last minute and bu- and pushes it over fifty million. That would I would I don't want any justification for another one of these because it sucked big time, and to, and the gall to say, oh yeah, we're gonna have a sequel for these. Yeah, no, screw you. Dropping over fifty percent uh, between between week one and week two. That's beautiful, and shock of shocks, jumping up from number six to number five is Disney's Christopher Robin. It actually rose up from from uh, a rank from last week. And it brought in $6.3 million, which brings its domestic gross up to $77 million and its global gross up to $112 million. And what are the... What was the... Uh, I think that's about where its budget was. Let me take a look. Um... 70 to 75 million. So it's made back. It took three weeks, it looks like, to make back four weeks to make back its budget. And it still hasn't made enough to really break even in terms of like marketing and whatnot. So Christopher Robin is probably the. How, how does it compare to, um, to the other live action remakes? 
Uh, it's doing better than Pete's Dragon uh, already. So, I mean, that's that's something. Pete's Dra- it opened higher than Pete's Dragon, and it's making made more money than Pete's Dragon, which is the comparable uh, Disney live-action movie. But it's still not doing the numbers of something like uh, Beauty and the Beast or Cinderella. I think those just have more of that Disney presence to them where it's like Winnie the Pooh doesn't have the doesn't have the the pull that the princesses do. I think more people are familiar with the princesses than they are with Winnie the Pooh at this point. And they care more about them than they do about, you know, a silly old bear. So it's kind of sad that it's not doing as well. But at the same time, it's not exactly the best of the Winnie the Pooh movies either. So I'm not too sad for it. Uh, I mean, if they do another Winnie the Pooh movie, I would love to see something of this style again, but with what centered more on the actual Hundred Acre Wood characters. But uh, yeah, I don't see them returning to Winnie the Pooh for a while. Uh, Staying at number four is Mission Impossible Fallout with $8 million, uh, bringing its domestic total up to $193.9 million. And combined with the foreign gross, you've got a worldwide total of $538.7 million, which makes it the fourth overall of the of the Mission Impossible franchise. Uh, adjusted for inflation, it's number five behind Rogue Nation. So this movie's doing fine for itself. Uh, a, a worldwide unadjusted, it's just behind Mission Impossible 2. So we'll see if you can top that and we'll... And, that would be something. If the if the last three Mission Impossible movies are the t- highest grossing out of all of them, that would be something you'll see. So we'll see come next week how it, how it fares. And then premiering at number three this week, we've got Happy Time Murders, which caught which brought in 10.02 million dollars. So just over $10 million. No foreign gross to help it out. It only brought in $10 million this weekend. Which means it only got a quarter of its budget back. This movie is a hard flop. This is probably going to go down as one of the one as a, as a you know actually no there are worse bombs in history but this is definitely going to go down as one of this year's bigger bombs. I highly doubt it it can make back its budget over the over the you know with especially since award season is going to come out and they're going to get those big um, Ted Pole dramas being released. Happy Time Murders is going to get buried. Yeah, I don't see it. I don't even see it staying in the top ten, but we'll see. Come next week. Yeah, Happy Time Murders. It, it was a it was a nice shot, but it just wasn't quite there yet. Staying at number two this week is The Meg, which brought in thirteen million dollars, bringing its domestic total up to one hundred and five million, and its global total up to four hundred and eight point six million dollars. This is just a runaway success. Number four overall of the Shark movies. Um, they include Finding Nemo in there, as well as Shark Tale. Highest grossing shark movie is still Jaws. That, that is still, I mean, that's probably going to maintain the highest. I mean, this, the Meg is doing better than the Jaws sequels, Deep Blue Sea, uh, 47 Meters Down, which good, that movie sucked. The Open Water movies, uh, Shark Night 3D, like, the Meg is probably the, it's probably going to compare compete with Jaws as one of the highest grossing of the shark um, of the highest grossing shark movies of all time. Uh, the only thing is Jaws has made a billion dollars. 
adjusted for inflation, and then it's still behind uh, the other Jaws. If you adjust for inflation, the Meg is just above the shallows and behind Jaws 2 and 3 and Deep Blue Sea. So it's still got a ways to go to top those if you adjust for inflation, but otherwise it's right behind the, the original Jaws. So, hey, people like it, so good for them. Uh, just not my thing. I, it's not stupid enough to be fun for me, sadly. So, uh, that's that. Uh, say, and once again, I, I revealed it already. Staying at number one this week is Crazy Rich Asians, which had a... Here's the thing. Movies will have a precipitous drop from week to week as less people go to see a movie. There's less repeat viewings of a movie. So, like I mentioned, Mile 22 dropped over half of you know dropped over half of its uh, last of its gross last weekend. The Meg has dropped 38 percent from uh, the last weekend to this weekend. Uh, Alpha dropped nearly half as nearly half, but from from last weekend to this weekend. Uh, Slenderman dropped 42 percent. Uh, Twenty the lowest. Uh, the only other lo- you know within the top ten, the the second lowest drop between last weekend and this weekend was Mission Impossible Fallout, which is a quarter. It's a, It made a quarter of the same money it made last weekend. Meanwhile, Crazy Rich Asians only dropped by 5%. So yeah, it brought in $25 million this weekend. Which combined with its la- which, which combined with last weekend brought its domestic gross up to seventy six million dollars, and its and its global gross up to eighty three. This is all. Re- it took two weeks, and this movie is already profitable. This is already in the in the black. This is already making money for uh, who who got who's the lucky one to release this movie? Who who who's the lucky studio to bankroll this one? Come on, give me a, give me a name. Come on, give me a name. Come on. Jeez. Um, hold on. Let me go to the the schedule. Warner Brothers. Warner Brothers is already seeing a profit on this movie, and it only took two weeks. It took one week to get most of the budget back. By week two, the budget is nearly doubled. You know, it already made back its budget week one, and by week two... It, 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 it's budget was already doubled. So whatever advertising costs were already made back. This movie from this week onward is only going to be profitable. It is only going to make them more money, which is great for them and great for representation. Cause that means, Hey, you don't need a white and all white cast to lead a movie to be successful. Black Panther between black Panther and crazy rich Asians. We're already seeing the numbers back up. What people have already said. Diverse casts don't mean that you'll get make less from your movie. As long as your movie is good, it doesn't matter what the cast makeup is. Doesn't need to be all white. So that's great. Great for Crazy Rich Asians. Wish I'm so glad to see that. And I can't and, and I'm interested to see what happens next week. Because you've got John Cho leading a leading solo leading a thriller for, uh, in the same vein as Unfriended. And then that's competing with Crazy Rich Asians. We'll see which of the two is going to... Because uh, you've got the new hotness coming in with John Cho. Or will people gravitate back towards Crazy Rich Asians again? We'll have to wait next week and see. So yeah. 
good for crazy rich Asians, had a had less than ten percent drop in in number in uh in gross from one, from week one to week two. That is beautiful. That I don't, I don't see that. I, that's what stood out to me because that's the thing. You compare this to last weekend. So let's take a look at uh, the previous. Is there? How do I get back to? Uh, here we go. Last weekend. Uh, let's if we take a look at that. Meg dropped by half. Most of the movies dropped by over twenty percent from one week from the previous week to the la- to the next week. We go to the weekend before that. Forty percent, forty percent, forty percent, thirty percent, sixty percent. Darkest Minds dropped from dropped by sixty three percent. Um, Teen Titans Go dropped by sixty one percent. Seventy percent. Who dropped by Skyscraper dropped by seventy percent. So I mean, they're the only positives are like indies that get shown in more theaters. Like Eighth Grade had a hundred had over a hundred percent increase from from uh from from uh. It's third week to its fourth week because it got shown in more theaters. More often than not, you see drops in over, and you see drops in the double digits. The fact that Crazy Rich Asians stayed at number one and had less than ten percent drop from one weekend to the next is beautiful. I I don't see that. I I rarely see that kind of that kind of percentage rate from one weekend to the next. So fantastic for them. Good for you guys. You did great. And with that being said, it's time to look ahead to next week in this week's Trailer Talk. Coming this summer. It's Trailer Talk. Rated R starts Friday. So, Surging got pushed back one week, so I won't be um, looking at that trailer again. I'm just going to be looking at uh, what what is slated for next week, which are we've got two other wide releases besides searching opening further wide. It looks like, uh, hopefully further wide. Um, let me double check with IMDb as well because the numbers isn't always uh, the isn't always the most accurate uh, when it comes to uh, opening weekends. Usually, it's um, IMDb is another close one, but we'll see us searching opens wider. It only uh, next weekend. The only other two we've got coming up this weekend, we've got Kin and we've got Operation Finale. So we're going to take a look at the trailer for Kin first up, and then we're going to take a look at Oscar Isaac's hunting, hunting Nazis in Operation Finale. Also, Ben Kingsley plays a um, plays a what was it? Uh, not Himmler. Who was? Let me pull it up. Um, Nazi officer who uh, who masterminded the Holocaust, and that is Adolf Eichmann. So yeah, it's it's yeah, Ben Kingsley, a half Indian, half British man, is going to be playing Adolf Eichmann. I he's going to be playing a Nazi. I've I don't think I I didn't think I would ever see that in my lifetime. So we're gonna take. So let's take a look at. The two trailers for what's going to round out our August. First up is uh, an adaptation of a short film uh, of the same, you know, for, by the director. Uh, I'll get more into that uh, after the trailer, but we're going to take a look at Kin. If I'm hard on you, it's because the world is hard. You've seen that. 
And I just need you to stay out of trouble, okay? Huh. Probably the best Dennis Quaid performance I've seen in a while. Oh I'm interested to see how he does on this. Ooh, great effects. Producers of Stranger Things and Arrival. Your brother just got out of prison. I know I've been away for a long time. Who's the time. brother? I want to make sure that you know that you're important to me. I want you to be careful around him. Welcome home, my man. Yeah, James Franco's in this. I know I owe you guys some money. I just want you to know I'm not dodging you. Oh. Yeah. James Franco's back to playing the bad guy. What the hell is that thing? This kid, I like him already. I found it. Somebody's got to be looking for this thing. I'm guessing either aliens or the future. It, I'm, it might be the future. Oh, hi, Zoe Kravitz. To call someone. Ha, it's a taser. No forces greater. Dangerous people coming after us. No bond is stronger. But it's been pretty incredible to be brothers for the first time. Then fan. Whatever have gotten him into. He's gonna figure it out Oh, this looks great. Zoe Kravitz looks good too. She seems to be giving a solid performance. We'll see how much she's featured in the movie. You haven't told me this. And of course, Carrie Coon. Mount Union's own Carrie Coon. Shout out to my homegirl. Homegirl, God. I'm sorry, I'll never say that again. Great effects. Dynamite effects in this. I can't wait. Ooh, yeah. I, I, who knows? This might top it. I mean, if this gets enough buzz going for it, this could easily top uh, top next weekend. Uh, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, but yeah, this is by director Jonathan Baker. Um, Jonathan and Josh Baker, the Baker brothers. And this was based off of a short that they did called Bagman, I believe. Uh, Bagman is the understated story of a 12-year-old African-American boy who takes on an introspective journey out of the city and into the remote countryside of upstate New York. So it's kind of it's kind of taking that sort of thing, but adding the sci-fi element to it. But and they're taking the sort of drama that they had with uh, Bagman and adapting that to uh, Kin. And it even says, based on their short film, Bagman. So they've taken Bagman and ad added more of... The sci-fi element, the uh, family dynamic. Uh, let me see if they get in. Let me see. Uh, does it say? I'm, yeah, short action drama. Wait, action drama. So wait. Uh, to, up to New York with a mysterious duffel bag in hand. Its contents unknown to us. We journey from the urban hustle of Harlem. Went to ravaged woodlands in a world away, a world away. On the road, he slowly discovers his real intentions. The significance of what he's hidden inside the young boy's back. Okay. So yeah, they've taken that and they've kind of drawn on those elements and brought in, into this new movie, which features uh, James Franco, Zoe Kravitz, Dennis Quaid, and Jack Rayner. Uh, Carrie Coon, I mentioned. Jack Rayner of Glassland. He played in that uh, 2015 Macbeth. Ooh, he was in Free Fire. And then he was in that Sing Street movie. Um, 
He's going to be Brother Wolf in the upcoming Mowgli movie by, uh, um, I already forgot his name. Crap. Um, uh, Gollum. Damn it. Andy Serkis. Took me a second. Uh, he was in an episode of Electric Dreams. He was in Detroit. Man with the Iron Heart. Uh, so he's minor stuff. In st- uh, he was Shane Dyson in Age of Extinction. Wait, is he the... Is, is he the freaking douchebag love interest from... He is the... Poor... Uh, I'm not going to hold that against him. He seems to be working with a much better script this time. But yeah, he's the douchebag love interest from Age of Extinction. But he's going to be playing um, the sort of, uh, you know, blue-collar uh, guys uh, roped into criminal life with, uh, under James Franco. And then Carrie Coon is going to be the lead cop, it looks like, maybe, I think. Um and then you've got Zoe Kravitz as this love interest for J- uh, Jack Rayner. And then you've got uh, Miles Truitt, uh, I think in his first movie as the main character, Eli. Um, he's on, he's Issa Williams on Black Lightning. He played young Ronnie DeVoe on the New Edition story for BET. Queen Sugar, Atlanta, and then The Short J. So this is actually his first um, feature-length film, although he is going to be playing someone named Ethan in Dragged Across Concrete. Uh, once two overzealous cops get suspended from the forest, they must delve into the criminal underworld to get their just due. Starring Mel Gibson and Jennifer Carpenter. Oh, great! Mel Gibson and Vince Vaughn! Fan-friggin-tastic! Who's directing this crap? S. Craig Zeller, who is best known for Bone Tomahawk, which I hear good things about, and Brawl in Cell Block 99. Okay. Weird. Yeah, I, I'm, I, I, no, it's no wonder I haven't seen anything about this. Oh, it's only, it's first release date is in frickin' Russia. <laughs> That's always a good sign. That's always a good sign. It's probably gonna get dumped to Netflix over here for, uh, for good reason. So, uh, uh, I expect good things to come for this kid based on how this movie does. So I'll be, we'll see that come next week. And then let's take a look at, the hunt for Adolf Eichmann in Operation Finale. MGM, so good to see that logo again. You have no interest in what I have to say. Unless it confirms what you think you already know. Wow, it's so weird to see Ben Kingsley as a Nazi. My job was simple. I never thought I'd see that in my lifetime. Save the country I love from being destroyed. job any different and of course oscar isaacs as the Mossad agent tasked with bringing him down enemy of all people adolf eichmann the architect of the final solution nick kroll as well in a dramatic role intelligence suggests buenos aires yep sky convinced rabbis to load the trains themselves and not by force after World War II, Hitler's deadliest lieutenant escaped. Is we need an elite crew. I'm not joining your hit squad. I would happily put a bullet in between his eyes, but that's not what we're doing here. This is strictly catch and extract. Eichmann will stand trial here in Israel. This fall. Think what it means. Finally, publicly, holding to account the man who organized our slaughter. The mission for justice begins. Back through recorded history. The book of memory still lies open, and you here now are the hand that holds the pen. 
If you succeed, for the first time in our history, we will judge our executioner. And we will warn off any who may wish to follow his example. If you fail, he escapes justice. Perhaps forever. Operation Finale. Ooh. Oscar Isaac Ben Kingsley. Who's the who's the lead female in this? Let me take a look at her. Because um, it looked kind of like Bryce Dallas Howard, but I couldn't tell. Melanie Laurent looks like. Uh, yeah, Mel- Melanie Laurent is Hannah Elian. Uh, she, uh, she is the French... Ver- wait. For the French version of The Simpsons. Whoa, whoa, wait. Who is she in The Simpsons? What the heck? I, I'm not even seeing. What are they talking about? Okay, hold on. Let me pull up The Simpsons and then look at their international cast. All right. Okay. Da, 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 da. One episode. Can we get? Where are the international cat? Nope. Okay. Hold on. You can't just say that and then not list it. IMDb. What the hell? Hold on. The Simpsons international cast. Simpsons Wikipedia. Uh, bah, bah, bah. Premise production themes, hallmarks, media, syndication, voice actors, list of Simpsons cast members, recurring guest voices, awards and nomination, main cast. There you go. Non-English versions of The Simpsons. Jeez. Should not be this hard to find. Okay, French. French language. Da, da, da. Le, Les Simpsons. Uh, both regions. Da, da, da. Kirk Van Houten is given a series of Russians, Brussels accent. Uh, local idioms. Gerard Rinaldi. Uh, Hold on. I'm not seeing... Here, uh, let me look up her wiki. Maybe that'll give us... Says... She is... In the French version of The Simpsons. And that never says what her character is. Here we go. Filmography. Roles and awards by Melanie Laurent. Uh, Okay. As a filmmaker. 1989. No. But she was Shoshana. Okay, this is Shoshana. 
from Inglorious Bastards uh, as the as the woman again as the lead female in Operation Finale. So that's it. So that's good. Uh, I, I, you know, that's that's a good thing to expect. Uh, get, that gives me a good um, expectations. Okay, this is pissing me off. Melanie Laurent Simpsons. What the hell is going on? Wait a, wait a second. Oh, for she's not on the French version of The Simpsons. Her dad is on the French version of The Simpsons. Is the voice of Ned? Her father Pierre is the French version of Ned Flanders. That's all it is. I tried to find her, and it's. It's her dad that's on The Simpsons. <sighs> Stupid IMDb. Anyway, yeah, this. I, um, I, it's hard to say how this will turn out. Um, just, once again, just because it's about the Holocaust and and tying into World War II doesn't mean it's going to be a good movie. But we'll have to wait and see. Who's the director for Operation Finale? That should give us an idea of what to expect. Opening next week. Operation Finale is by Chris Weitz, who is the director of About a Boy, also wrote The Golden Compass, was one of the writers on Rogue One. What's, what's some of his last stuff? Um, that's producer. Let's take a look at writer. He wrote the screenplay for The Mountain Between Us, and he also adapted... He was also cited for the About a Boy TV series. Wrote the screenplay for Disney Cinderella, live-action Cinderella, and his last directing gig was A Better Life, which was about um, ooh, Damien Bashir, Jose Julian, uh, about Gardner in East L.A. struggles to keep his son away from gangs and immigration agents while trying to give his son the opportunities he, he never had. Interesting. Uh, never, never saw it, though. That was 2011. So he's been writing mostly since then. And then before that, he did, it looked like New Moon? Twilight New Moon. And the Golden Compass. So he's best known for about a boy. Uh, so we'll have to wait and see how he handles uh, World War II drama. Because he was not great at adapting the Golden Compass. Though I doubt anybody would be. And he's only tangentially tied into um, uh, things like Rogue One and Mr. and Mrs. Smith. Uh, he also helped produce. He's, he's mainly more of a producer it looks like. Because he's tied into the American Pie series. Um, Nick and Nick and Nora's Infinite Playlist, and you know things like that. Um, he's also produ- producing a, a another version of Pinocchio, uh, which he's co-writing. Oh, he's tied to the live-action adaptation of Pinocchio because, of course, that's going to get turned into live-action. Uh, but okay, it's got uh, the director of the Paddington movies, and who's also worked on the Mighty Boosh. So that's that's a good sign, at least. That's a guy who ha- who knows how to handle children. Uh, you know, children's whimsy. Um, we'll see how this guy does. This could probably just be a blip on his uh, fil- on his film career. Uh, probably won't. We'll, we'll have to wait and see. So yeah, that's what to look forward to next week. And that about does it for us this week, which means it is time for the plugs. If you're listening to this podcast, you're most likely listening to us on our homepage at GumbyCatNetworks.com. And if you want to listen, keep up to date on all the new episodes as they come out, 
be uh, be sure to favorite us and whitelist us on your ad blocker so that you can uh, so that yeah you know, we aren't uh, you know kept from any sort of ad revenue for the site and you know you're able to help us out uh, and you know that way you're able to get up to you know all the new episodes are de- are going to be released through uh, Gumby Cat uh, f- uh, first firstly and that's where the hub is. For all the new episodes. Plus, you can also check out all of our other fine programming, things like Living in the Stacks. Uh, next episode is going to come out. A new episode is going to come out next week. That's going to have to do with uh, a um, a a classic uh, book about uh, greasers in Oklahoma, uh, and that should give it away to anybody who's familiar with it. So stay tuned for that next week. And also check out some of Donna's stuff. She's amazing. Check out all of our fine programming and let us know what you think. And if you have a podcast yourself and would like to join our network, uh, let us know and send your inquiries to gummicatnetworks at gmail.com and we'll get back to you. And uh, if you're not listening to us through our homepage, you're probably listening to us through our various podcast providers. We're on uh, Apple Podcasts. We're on Google Play. We're on Spotify. We're on iHeartRadio. We're on Stitcher, I believe. Uh, we're just all over the place when it comes to uh, our podcast. And for some reason, this is being a pain in the butt. Sorry, this, uh, this is just, uh, you know, inside baseball on my end. But yeah, it, we're all over the place. So wherever you are, wherever you get your fine podcasts, uh, you'll be able to find uh, Popcorn Junkie. If you ever see my orange mug chomping on popcorn, staring at the movies, you're able to... Uh, get uh, get all the new episodes and as long as it's over episode 100 you should be good so be sure to leave a five-star rating and review to let people know that you like the show and that they should check it out as well and you know if you really want you know if you also want to share the show on your social media you can the social media home for popcorn junkie is facebook.com slash popcorn junkie that's where uh all the big news is going to come out that's where the hub uh, that's where the social media hub of the podcast is and that's where you can get all the inf- you know all kind you know all the information pertaining to the podcast, major announcements, things of that nature, um, and then uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, I'm less active on Twitter, and I'll get into why in a bit. But if you still want to follow me on Twitter, I'm at popcorn I'm at corn junkie pod on twitter.com. And if you want to follow us on Instagram, it's mainly just pictures, you know, and you know things pertaining to the new releases, announcements of when I do a video on Stardust. Um, I'm still trying to figure out what all to do on Instagram to stay more active there, but that's main. But if you want to follow me on Instagram, I'm at Popcorn Junkie Podcast at inst- on inst- on the Instagram app, and then I'm not on Twitter as much because I'm trying out this new thing called Mastodon. Um, some of there's it, Mastodon is a, an open source live feed style social media network that is that has become famous now. For calling out the alt right and neo Nazis and saying they no longer ha- they they have no voice on their platform, they have identified themselves as free from that kind of. There's still there's like there's like a, I got followed by a, a a Riker bot. You know he's a bot that fo- that um posts about that posts stuff pertaining to uh, Riker from. Uh, Next generation, Star Trek: The Next Generation. So there's fun bots. There aren't malicious bots, 
and it is much more it's it is much more hard line against uh, abuse and that sort of thing than Twitter ever was because Twitter only targets it, Twitter is definitely uh, showed its hand on who it favors on their website. So if you're sick of Twitter's garbage, I highly recommend you come over and, to Mastodon. We're small. We're burgeoning, but I but if you want to, I, I think if we can get most of the people away from Twitter and onto Macedon, we can improve it a lot more, and we don't have to deal with the garbage that Twitter allows on its on its network. So, uh, help us to improve Macedon. Join us. I I am at Popcorn Junkie at Macedon social. So, look into Macedon social. Uh, sign up. Sign up for for your own profile. Smaller, we're kind of, we're still small. We're still burgeoning. I think one of the biggest names to uh, come over to Mastodon was uh, a prominent sci-fi writer. I forget, I forgot the name off the top of my head though. But you know, it's mainly small. It's mainly individuals now. Not a lot of celebrities joining Mastodon at the moment. But you know. The people that are there are pretty keen. I've had some more interesting conversations on Mastodon than I have ha- ever had on Twitter. You know, not, nothing. Off- no offense to the people on Twitter that I follow, but like I've gotten more feedback on. Um, no, I think that was Twitter that I got feedback on uh, Lady Gaga. But yeah, I, so I mean, it's it, once again. But once again, uh, I'm following. You know, I'm following some really interesting people on Mastodon, both on my personal profile and on my podcast profiles. So if you want to find uh, me personally, I'm at jbailey1017 at, uh, at social, And you can also follow Living in the Stacks there. And then you can follow Popcorn Junkie there. And I'm trying to move the stuff away from Twitter and onto Mastodon. Because I think Mastodon is, gonna, is, is, much, is a much better platform that steers away. Like, it doesn't have the, the uh, audience that Twitter has yet, hopefully. But it, I would rather help to build up Macedon than to stay in the doldrums of Twitter. Because Twitter is a garbage website. And any, if, they, if we can produce a genuinely, genuine competitor for Twitter through Macedon, that would, be all, that, would be, that would be even better. Because anything to get rid of Twitter and somebody who's willing to do the administerial duties that Jack refuses to do on Twitter is a good thing. Uh, and then, of course, you can also follow, also follow me on Stardust to get my initial reactions to new releases and whatever else I'm watching. So you can follow me there at Popcorn Junkie on Stardust and follow other amazing people like uh, Epic Voice Guy, the other internet, John Bailey. He is the king of Stardust as far as I'm concerned. He puts more effort into his reviews than I've ever seen from anybody else. Uh, the Double Toasted guys are there. The Shmo Snow are there. Mars Girl is there. Mars Girl's not as, as active. But, you know, you can find... Whomever you like, uh, there's you know some people are starting to get a hang of Stardust, and you, you could even find some new people. I found some new associates uh, through Stardust where we share our reactions and we you know we kind of it, it's like a way for us to talk um, movies with one another, and it's a fun little like vine for movie lovers. So if you want to come join us, download the Stardust app for your phone. Follow me at Popcorn Junkie and follow whomever you lo- else you like. Share your own reactions. You can li- react to TV, movies, uh, trailers, whatever you want. If you if you want to if you have thoughts on something and if you can get them down to like thirty seconds, you can share your thoughts on Stardust and you can come join the party with us. And if there's anything else you want to say to the podcast, any kind of feedback you want to give, any kind of uh, comments, 
you want to share it? What were your thoughts on Axel and the Happy Time Murders? What are your thoughts on puppet movies? You know, uh, what was my suggestion earlier in the episode? I've already forgotten. Um, so yeah, it whatever your thoughts are on pertaining to the episode. If you want me to read your thoughts, let me know in writing in the email, and I will share them on the podcast. Otherwise, I will just be. Um, you know, otherwise I'll just get back to you in private. But all of that can be done through popcornjunkiepodcast at gmail.com. That about does it for this week. Until next time, I'm John Bailey. And hopefully I don't have to do as much editing for any of future Green Band trailers. That was... That, that was a Green Band. The Green Band was dropping curse words. theme song for Popcorn Junkie is Funky Popcorn by The M. Look up Funky Popcorn by the letter M on SoundCloud for more of their music. Artwork provided by Nafio, N-A-F-Y-O. Look up nafio.deviantart.com for more of his artwork. Honestly, have don't. <laughs> that's a bad. I don't words tonight. I cannot words. <laughs>